Technology is power. Whoever controls the global digital infrastructure holds massive sway across the modern world. Until recently, the so-called tech-lash was in full swing. Consumers were dissatisfied with the erosion of their privacy. Google, Apple, Amazon and Facebook faced record European fines and bills for back taxes in the hundreds of millions and sometimes even billions of dollars. And two of the leading candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination in America were promising an immediate breakup of the tech giants. But now, a global contagion requires global solutions. With the spread of lockdowns to control the coronavirus, more people than ever rely on e-commerce and social media for supplies, for information and even for their medical care. After the use of contact tracing apps to help control the virus in Asia, the EU Commission is urging mobile phone companies to share their data. And Google and Apple have announced a new partnership to use their planet-spanning network of 3.5 billion devices to help track the pandemic. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, has COVID-19 killed the tech lash? My guest is Margrethe Vestager, formerly Deputy Prime Minister in Denmark, is the EU's competition commissioner. She's known as a giant slayer, issuing record-breaking fines against America's tech titans. Now in her second term, and with a new role of executive vice president for digital, she has unprecedented powers to direct Europe's technological future. But in the wake of a pandemic, that future may look very different. Margrethe Vestager, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So give us a sense of Brussels at the moment, usually bristling with officials, parliamentarians, lots of people doing business and clamouring at your door. What's it like at the moment? It's a very, very different place. Uh, 95% of all commission staffers are working from home. So very, very few of us uh, here in the Bellemont. So it's like a, a giant ship with very few people personally on the bridge, but with a lot of people helping out because a lot of things is going on. The, the help packages, uh, the state aid decisions, the coordination when it comes to health, the green lines for trucks. Everyone is extremely busy. But the thing is, you don't feel it, as you say, the bustle, the bus of Brussels. And half of Europe, approximately, is planning a partial return to business uh, quite soon in the next few days and weeks. What are your concerns about where the flashpoints might lie as Europe begins to get seriously into its exit strategy from coronavirus? Well, the important thing is that we are coordinated, but not harmonized, because every member state is at a, a different point of the curve. So the thing is that the better we coordinate, the more member states can learn from one another so that you get a sense of uh, what happens when you open this, when you open that. But I think everyone has realized that it will take much longer than we first uh, hoped. And also that the consequences on businesses and because of that, on jobs, on people's livelihood, they will be very severe. And this week, the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, announced conditions she wants member states to meet before they lift their lockdowns. But Brussels, the great sort of central organising institutional Europe, has been 
largely absent in the management of this crisis so far. National governments have taken the lead. So is there really still a role for the Commission at all in coordinating what looked like a melange of national strategies on COVID-19? Well, it comes from the very simple fact that there is very little competence within our European democracy when it comes to health. It is primarily a competence of member states. So what we have been doing is, of course, when everyone realized, well, yes, we have national competence, but we rely very, very much on one another, that coordination efforts has been sort of a very, very large contribution. We have a group of uh, of scientists, I think the best in Europe, to advise and making sure that that advice is then shared with Minister of Health and Minister of the Interior in order for them to know what are the rest of the European Union doing. And I think in that, a lot of things has been done. Take the green lines, uh, because when borders closed down, you had 20, 40, 60 kilometers of queues of trucks that were carrying vital material. And just in enabling the green lines all over Europe for transportation to take place, I think that is a very valuable contribution by my colleagues here. Well, I wonder whether you're being a bit optimistic about that from the the perspective of someone, obviously, who serves at the heart of the EU, and that there does seem to be a bit of a de facto fragmentation as a result of of what we've seen. We've seen very few leaders, for instance, going out in concert. We haven't seen that powerful Franco-German alliance. We've really seen national leaders worried about their own standing, worried about their own populations. And I wonder whether that is likely to remain a bit of a fragmentation as we come out of the crisis. Oh, well, don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not uh, very optimistic on these accounts. It is as if we learn every morning that cooperation is what will take us through this in the least uh, bad way. So no, it's it's definitely not a given. I can remember uh, the reaction of the financial crisis. And I must say that was worse. Then you had an even sort of more withdrawal to your own uh, nation state. And it took a very, very long time before there was a European response to the situation that also affected each and everyone. Back then, you had the moral hazard. Here, this is unprecedented. There's no one to be blamed but the virus. And this is why I think that the Eurogroup found an agreement uh, last week, now to be discussed by heads and state of government. And I think that is also the reason why we have been able to do unprecedented openings for state aid and also unprecedented launching the general uh, escape clause when it comes to a big part of our budget rules. Let's come to the biggest part of your day job, if we we could, which is deciding the the future of tech companies as they operate in Europe and what the framework and regulation around that should look like. We've seen a key part of the Commission's roadmap to coordinated exit from lockdown is significant data gathering and sharing, contact tracing and tracking using mobile apps. But that seems to pull against a lot of what you stood for in terms of protecting personal privacy. Do you think you can find the golden mean between these two apparently oppositional (laughs) approaches to tech? Well, indeed, uh, we have published uh, guidelines that has led to a toolbox that is now being developed with uh, and between member states that allows both for privacy and for not exactly tracing, but that you will be informed if you have been close to someone who are later diagnosed with the virus, that data is stored on your own device that it is temporary, 
that you know that the app is doing exactly what it is supposed to do. It works by Bluetooth, so you do not use localization data. Of course, it's a balance, but here we have found that actually you can do something very helpful when it comes to mitigating the health crisis while maintaining privacy. Well, you say while maintaining privacy, but there is some forfeit of personal privacy. If you look at Google and Apple's new collaboration, that's a network of 3.5 billion devices. And I take your point that you can build in precautions about what kind of data is gathered. But surely what we've learned is that when you do have a vast network of devices, you are paying a price in terms of privacy. And my question would be, is it worth forfeiting some of that for the sake of public health? Well, I think we're talking about two different things here, because one thing is to make sure that whatever uh, app can work with apps uh, cross-border. And in that, of course, the operating systems will have to support that. But what you see, for instance, there is uh, quite a big consortium of uh, member states and telcos coming together and making sure that people can actually trust the technology. Because obviously it must be voluntary that you sign up for this. And I think that you will only sign up for something that you trust. So here, actually, privacy can help you get what you want, which is that people sign up because they actually trust the technology to do what it's supposed to do and not to uh, spy on you, to pass on data that is not supposed to be passed on. Will the EU now focus less than on data protection? which has been its guiding philosophy. And I think you've very much been at the forefront of defining that and more on how data can be used because a global contagion in the end is going to require global solutions. It must mean some change in that balance between the use of data and protection. Well, I think that someone will want you to believe this. I think that there are, of course, people who would say, oh, I need your localization." I need to know where you are all the time. I need to store that and I need to use it not only for this, but also for this and this and this. And I think that is part of what we have to fight here to say, no, it is actually possible to build technology that you can trust because it doesn't take your data. It doesn't misuse it. And you have the transparency for independent, qualified people that you trust to check that the technology is actually doing what it's supposed to do. No more, no less. Do you think this makes tech titans harder to regulate in other areas? There's always a trade here, and you've been involved in a a tussle, and it's still ongoing in some legal areas too with some of the biggest tech companies in the world. If they are to help, and they see their role as being central to helping now in the pandemic, it is going to be harder for you, I would posit, to be able to regulate them and to hold them back in some of the other areas that matter to you. No, I definitely do not think so. If you look at consents, for instance, I think when people realize, oh, if it's about my health data, I'd I'd better read the terms and conditions. I think that can also have an effect for people to say, well, maybe I have also consented to something that I actually do not really want to share. What is happening right now is that we're all having a full-scale crash course in digital education. Everyone is either learning digitally, working digitally, socializing uh, digitally. I even heard about scouts doing scouting uh, digitally. So basically, there's no limit to that. And that, of course, is something that will change our starting point when it comes to make best use of digital tools for the future. But we have also seen some of the pitfalls of that. If we look at people crashing into to online video calls and some leakage 
around that, I know the British government here is a bit worried about, for instance, the, the use of Zoom in, in some areas when it comes to parliamentary and political business. Mm. So it may be that when you say it's an education that people are adopting tech, they don't fully understand and are not yet equipped to understand. Is there any risk to your mind in that? Yes, I think so. I think at the same time, we have to scale up our efforts when it comes to cybersecurity. Because when more things are ongoing uh, online, of course, we open ourselves to different sets of risk. Surveillance uh, of uh, being broken into, of just plain fraud, uh, because we are more uh, online with more sensitive issues. So things will have to work in parallel. That if we do more digital, well, then our security and our cybersecurity in particular will have to be more considered. And I think that we also can, can expect a giant market response here for the market to say, well, now when you do more online, we're also there to protect you in what you do. And that is also part of when it comes to sharing health data, security is of the essence. You're often described as a giant slayer. Uh, now in your second round, if you like, of, of the giant slaying tournament. And you're on record as saying that even big fines aren't enough to change the behaviour of the tech giants. I think you said about this time last year, after finding Google close to 1.5 billion euros, this is a sign that we may have to do more. Now, fines get uh, lots of, of attention. How much real impact do you now think that they have? Now, you're able to, to look back on that Google episode well, the thing is that uh, in our decisions, first, of course, we say stop what you're doing. Second, you have to pay a fine for what you have been doing. And then we have a third leg that we are developing right now, which is what you could call sort of uh, restorative uh, actions. Because what we see in this market is that when they move very fast, illegal uh, behavior can be exactly what is tipping this market. And then even if the illegal behavior stops, it's very difficult for competitors to come back and serve consumers. But does it change the mindset of the tech companies or do they simply grudgingly or after a long legal tussle, as is still going on with many of them, just kind of move on to the next thing? I mean, are you winning the philosophical battle? Oh, but I'm not suggesting that the fines will do the trick, not at all. I think the important thing is that there is a change in behavior. And that change in behavior will have to be more fundamental for rivals to have a chance once uh, we have proven our cases. Because as you see, we, we do not have one Google case. We have three and we still have investigations. We've had one Amazon case. Now we have uh, new investigations. So it's not something where you say, oh, they paid a fine. They changed their behavior. No, they paid a fine. They took us to court and we unfortunately will have to open new cases. If we look at Amazon, there's a company that's become a lifeline. The lockdowns are expanding. People are getting more reliant on deliveries. But that means that, that there is also intense scrutiny. So how is your investigation into this company progressing in the circumstances? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much still alive and I have found uh, other places uh, to do my e-commerce. So you uh, won't use Amazon? No, I don't. Personally, I don't. Uh, I know many, many people do and appreciate it. But I'm, I make it a sport for myself to find other places to do my shopping. Can I just ask you why exactly? Because I'm a curious person. Because I find it interesting to see, well, what is out there? What is the, what is the new big thing? What is, uh, what is the innovation? How are things ongoing? What is happening out there? So who do you use instead of Amazon? Well, very often I would go directly to the vendors. Uh, I would search and I would find them and I would go directly to them to say, well, I have seen that uh, by comparing prices, you have a good deal. Would you send this to me? That gives me another relationship with my providers. And that also, you know... Gives Is it because you don't like Amazon? No, it's not so much about that because I don't think that you should invest your feelings 
in a tech company. Uh, I think you should do that in, in other places. For me, it's an interesting thing to test other things. But you withhold your business from it. And I'm just interested in the line of argument. Yeah, because they are an intermediary. Uh, you know, sometimes I also go to pick up my takeaway food myself instead of relying on, on other intermediaries. Because some of the intermediaries, they make it actually difficult for the one who makes the food, for the one who provides whatever uh, item uh, you want to buy. And for me to develop e-commerce is also about enlarging who participates. Because what we see with the giants is that the antitrust work will not do the full trick. What we are considering uh, right now is what kind of regulation is needed when you become sort of, I think back in the days, you would call it an essential uh, infrastructure, you would call it gatekeeping. Uh, you know, it has many different names. But the point is that you're sort of beyond because you become so big. So the sister of, of antitrust is regulation, and that may indeed be needed here. So on April the 15th, France announced it was closing all Amazon warehouses in the country for at least five days to investigate worker conditions. What's your opinion on that strong unilateral pushback against the company from France? Well, I think working conditions, that's very, very important. And if you want to have things uh, delivered, I think it's important that the people who make sure that that can happen, that they have decent working conditions. We have a very, very long tradition in Europe for unionizing, for having a strong social contract where you can say, okay, I'm being serviced, but the people who service me, they get a, a decent pay. So that is a very European thing. But that's a really interesting balance to strike because you can see a Europe of regulation evolving readily. Europe, institutional Europe, is very good at regulating, arguably less good at allowing innovation to thrive. And how do you stop that risk that countries in the EU and tied to EU rules become so kind of hostile to big tech that they end up reducing opportunities. They they love startups. <laughs> European capitals love telling how many startups they've got. But there is a point at which those startups want to get big. And the reason you don't get an Amazon, a Google or something of that scale is that they, they run into this sort of fishing net of regulation effectively that you are proposing and defending. Well, I think the main, the main obstacle here is that we're still fighting to make the single market a real single market. Because what happened both for Google and for Amazon, what also happened for the big Chinese ones, was that they have a vast home market, a vast single market, where they can get their things up and running with no language barriers, with no currency barriers. And I think that is underestimated as part of, uh, of the struggle. Because if you see innovative uh, businesses uh, in Europe, you'd see there's a lot ongoing to such a degree that I think it was Google who was in a shopping spree the last couple of years, bought the more than 150, almost 200 companies in Europe because a lot of things is ongoing. So the point is not that we lack innovation, but the point is that there is such a thing as a European model. In democracy, we set the framework for working conditions, for environment, for biodiversity, for health. Within those conditions, well, go compete, go innovate. Yeah, up to a certain point, go compete, go go innovate, uh, Ms. Veste. Because if you look at something like the, the arguments in Germany about the Siemens-Astra uh, merger and the, the EU's role in blocking that, well, the argument out of that was, look, it's time to reform competition law to enable European champions to rival US and Chinese companies. That was obviously about a different sector, but the same argument would go for the tech giants. I don't quite see how these European companies could ever hope to grow to scale, given that you put regulation and, as you put it, democratic control 
at the top of the list. But, but that is a choice. The Siemens Alstom is actually a very bad example to this because they never claimed that they could do better trains and they were European champions and to some degree global champions uh, already before they wanted to merge. So I, I think we should leave that example aside. But of course, there is a choice. And, and I think it's very but important. But we don't ask the voters directly about the choice, do we? we oh, yes, have... we do. Of course we do. Give me an example of consultation with voters on what they would want in terms of tech companies. Oh, but a lot of people appreciate that we have privacy laws that you cannot just invade your privacy and share your private information with whomever. We get a lot of complaints, a lot of them actually from US companies, about how the giants are are doing their business. Uh, We get a lot of attention as to how people are treated within uh, different companies. You'd hear how unions, they engage themselves in that. And I think that is perfectly fair, that things are different, different places on our planet. And as I see it, You always pay one way or another. And if you're willing to say, well, we don't want to have a social contract the same way as the Europeans wanted, that's, of course, fair enough. But still, it has allowed us, for instance, to have universal health care. And that's a European choice. And what about the vulnerability of companies coming out of this pandemic? Shutdowns have made European firms perhaps more vulnerable to foreign takeovers Mm. and Chinese uh, entry into markets, or indeed China's probably already in their markets, but to perhaps having more sway. Is that something that you think is likely to happen? And does that also need a response? Well, there is a risk, exactly as you describe it. Uh, And since also globally, some will get stronger sooner than others, well, then there is a risk of a hostile takeover. And here, I think it's very important to signal clearly that we are vigilant, that we're looking at this. And if it's strategic, if it's important, of course, member states can either, you know, just buy up shares in a company or they can use the tools of screening foreign direct investment to see if that actually is to be accepted. So you do see a risk by foreign companies to an extent here, we mean China, that this could be China's moment to take over European companies. Well, I I don't think that one can say say that sort of in in general, that all European companies are at risk. But I think that there is a risk, yes. The state is going to have to become very active then. You've you've talked about possibly states sort of buying shares in in companies. That's a massive expansion in the role of the state in business, isn't it? Well, that, of course, depends on the magnitude, uh, because not all businesses are are strategic. Not all businesses would, would give you a security concern. And Europe is open for business. Europe is open for foreign direct investment, and that will continue to happen. But I think it is important to signal there is something that is absolutely perfectly fine. And then there's something that is unacceptable. We ask of European businesses to compete on fair terms. And of course, for them, it is very tricky if a a competitor is being bought by a state-owned company that may sort of give uh, subsidies to that company so that they compete on unequal terms. And that, of course, we are very interested in because we want companies to be successful if they are innovative, if they have quality and and price points uh, that match one another, not because the taxpayers are picking up their bills. But there are huge disagreements between countries about how much to support businesses, aren't there? We've got the Portuguese Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, calling the Dutch Finance Minister's statements disgusting and mean-spirited. Now, there goes a a north-south divide across Europe about a particular response to the crisis. That is likely, is it not, to become more of a, an argument as individual countries argue about how much state support is appropriate. I think it's important to keep things apart here because it's, it's a very specific thing if they're a, 
a strategically important company is at the risk of a hostile takeover to sort of taking it all the way to mutualizing not only uh, what we will do for the future to recover, but also old debts. And the response that the Eurogroup agreed last uh, week that will be discussed now by heads of state and government, the work that we are doing to sort of uh, redo the multi-annual financial framework for it to be part of the recovery. Well, these are separate issues, but of course they support one another because we also learned from the financial crisis and we saw that maybe sometimes more support is needed fast. And to put it maybe a little bit banal, I think for a child who's going to repay some of that debt, it's better to have employed parents and then to repay a debt in the future than to have unemployed parents and to repay an even higher debt in the future. Because that may be the paradox that we're facing here. I know that you have to to leap off to pursue another part of your job digitally. Have you changed your mind about anything or even your approach to anything as a result of a different kind of relationship with digital that we're all having in this crisis that we're living through? One of the things I have appreciated is I think I have been using at least four different ways of having uh, meetings uh, like this. And, and I appreciate the differences in the technology. They have different qualities and different uh, purposes. I think it's a great time to sort of explore curiously what is actually out there, what can one do. But one of the things that I, I really have changed my mind about is that I think teleworking is definitely something that should be part of a future because it allows for another uh, flexibility. But I think the bottom line is still, I really appreciate my colleagues and I also appreciate them in person. Have you messed up on the technology at all the last three, four weeks? Probably I have. Probably someone has laughed at me here or there. And I have laughed at some of the things that are circulating on social media where you see people who really mess up. Of course, that could never happen at Economist Radio, says the woman who had to run around the house looking for batteries at seven <laughs> o'clock this morning. And, and, and I know that when you are on the, on the home front, you are known for a couple of things, a very accomplished domestic goddess, I think. Knitted elephants, I've read. Mm. Cinnamon buns. Uh, inferiority complexes creeping in uh, all across uh, across the continent. Um, sales of, of wool, eggs and flour have skyrocketed. So you were clearly on to the right yes. trends. So are you pursuing those hobbies or have you picked new ones or does the house just fill up with elephants? Well, I think it, it is a good thing, at least for me, uh, to stay grounded, to feel that I do something. And uh, I was so lucky it was just my birthday and I had a new sewing machine. So uh, now I'm just waiting for the grandchildren to, uh, you know, really get started. A new sewing machine, the investment from the coronavirus. Exactly. Margaret Sylvester, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We'd love to know what you think. Are you a lockdown knitter or a quarantine baker of note? Do send us your best patterns or ennui-busting recipes to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I will fully confess I have acquired a digital ice cream maker. Recipes to follow. And more seriously on the tech lash, has coronavirus turned tech's villains into modern-day superheroes? And how should they be reined in in the post-pandemic future? Your ideas and thoughts very welcome. And for more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.